the scripture reading for this evening and until May is 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It's on page 1,786 of the Bibles in the pews. Page 1,786. And this evening we're starting what is going to be a rather long sermon series on this chapter on 1 Corinthians 13. Over the next weeks and months we're going to be walking through this 13th chapter of Paul's letter to the Corinthians on the topic of love. And this passage is, I would venture to guess, probably the most well-known passage of Scripture to people who are outside of the church because it's, because it's so often used in weddings, um, even in non-Christian weddings. Um, if any of you watch the show, How I Met Your Mother, uh, you know that this passage was quoted in its entirety in an episode of that show when uh, Marshall and Lily were planning for their wedding, and they decided not to use it because it was too traditional. But it was just kind of amazing to me that an entire chapter of Scripture was quoted in the show how I Met Your Mother, and it was this passage, 1 Corinthians 13. And it's easy to see why that this passage is so popular, because here Paul is at his best. Paul is at his most eloquent. He's at his most poetic. This passage is, just fills us with joy. It's just such a beautiful passage. And yet at the same time, it conveys a powerful and profound message that love never fails. It's, this passage is so beautiful that it's easy to, uh, and tempting to take it out of context and just read it by itself, which we are going to read it by itself tonight. Don't worry, I'm not going to read you the entire letter of 1 Corinthians as our scripture reading. But it's important to remember that this passage is a part of, it does have a context, and that context is a particularly contentious letter between the Apostle Paul and what was really a very uh, difficult church that he had planted in the city of Corinth, in the Greek city of Corinth. So as we look at this passage over the next while, um, we're going to be looking constantly back at the context of 1 Corinthians, at the context of the Corinthian church um, that Paul is writing to and how this poem addresses that uh, situation. This, this poem is, is a beautiful ode to love, but at the same time, it's a challenge. It's a challenge to the Corinthian Christians. Paul tells them not only all these great things about love, but at the same time, he's challenging them to examine their own lives, to examine their own church, and to see how their lives match up to what God calls us to be. And the same is true for us. We're going to, as we go through this passage, we're going to be looking at how our lives and how our love uh, matches up to this love that Paul describes here in 1 Corinthians 13, and that can be a challenging and that can be a difficult thing, and that's something that we're not going to be able to do without the help of the Holy Spirit. So as we approach God's Word, let's come before Him in prayer. O Lord, our God and our King, we thank you for your love. We thank you for beauty. We thank you for poetry. We thank you for all of the things that make this passage so great. 
And Lord, we pray that as we read it and study it over the next weeks and months, that you will send your Holy Spirit to us so that we will be filled with the love of God. We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ, who shows us the perfect example of what love is. Amen. 1 Corinthians 13, starting at verse 1. I'm, I'm, re- I'm really excited about this sermon series. I'm just I'm thrilled, and I might get a little uh, excited during the sermon, as I'm already getting as I'm about to read this passage. You, you get a little nervous when you approach great texts like these. I mean, it's just, there's something, there's something about them that's just awesome. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians 13, starting at verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these, the greatest of these, is love. This is the word of the Lord. And what a beautiful word it is. Sisters and brothers in our Lord Jesus Christ, this is the love song of the church. It's so beautifully written and so powerful that it captures our hearts and makes our spirits soar. In some ways, in some ways, this passage is just like all other love songs. It makes us wonder, it captures our imaginations, it makes us believe It makes us sing in our hearts. It makes us remember times when we felt so deeply that we knew without a doubt that love was real, that love was true. 
It makes us remember a time when we fell in love, a time when we were shown love by another person, a time when we knew and saw the love of God in our own lives. Lou Smeads, in his book, he wrote a whole book on 1 Corinthians 13 called Love Within Limits, and he writes this. He says, A great love song is a moment of ecstasy frozen into words, a rhapsody of enthusiasm and passion, a metaphor pointing to a moment when the poet was lifted outside of himself to see reality in its ideal form. A love song is meant to seduce us from routine into a fantasized ideal of perfect love. And in some ways, that's exactly what 1 Corinthians 13 does. It transports us to a place outside of ourselves where we can see clearly and unimpaired what love really is. This is what great love songs do. They pull us out of the mundane day-to-day grit and grind of life on this earth so that we can appreciate the beauty of true love. They transport us to an ideal world in which everything is perfect and everyone is perfect because everything is made perfect by love. Love lifts us up where we belong, where the eagles cry on a mountain high. Love lifts us up where we belong, far from the world we know, up where the clear winds blow. This is what love songs do. Love songs lift us up, lift us up outside of ourselves to see reality in a different way, to see reality perfectly. But sometimes these love songs, which are supposed to capture moments of perfection in this life, can be so beautiful, so idealistic, so perfect that we just can't believe them because they're too far from the world we know. But the song that we have here in 1 Corinthians 13 captures us in a little bit of a different way than any of the love songs that we might hear on the radio or in the credits to movies. 1 Corinthians 13 talks about patience, kindness, trust and hope, envy, rudeness, selfishness and anger, the stuff of everyday life. There is something about Paul's ode to love that is very this-worldly, very fit for this life, while at the same time pulling back the curtain of the grit and grind of our daily existence to reveal what lies at the foundation of it all. And in the context of the letter to the Corinthians, Paul uses this chapter very specifically to address the situation of the church in Corinth. I love studying the letters of Paul to the church in Corinth because both 1st and 2nd Corinthians are written by Paul to address very specific issues that had come up in the church and he addresses them head on. And these problems don't match up exactly with the problems that we have in North American churches today, but there are a lot of parallels and there's a lot of wisdom that we can learn from how Paul instructs the Corinthians to deal with these problems. The Corinthian church is plagued by divisions and factions, as we see in chapters 1 through 4. People are fighting over who's the better teacher to follow, whether it's Paul or Apollos or Peter. 
and factions have formed in the church along these lines. The Corinthian Christians are confused about how to handle conflict and discipline, and so they've resorted to suing each other in the public courts as a way to resolve disputes. The Corinthian Christians are confused about what it means to have Christian freedom and what it means to have a holy life, and so they've allowed one of their brothers in Christ to shack up with his stepmother, something that Paul tells them even the pagans know is detestable. The Corinthian Christians have become convinced that certain relationship statuses are more spiritual than others, that it's okay for them to participate in pagan religious meals, that speaking in tongues in worship is a way to prove that you are more spiritual than your brothers and sisters in Christ, and that for some of them, the resurrection of the dead had already happened in their hearts. Throughout the letter, it becomes clear that the Corinthian Christians are very concerned with being spiritual. They want so badly to be spiritual. And so Paul addresses their beliefs about spiritual wisdom, spiritual mysteries, spiritual knowledge, spiritual freedom, and spiritual gifts head on. In the passage that concerns us for this evening and that will concern us for quite some time to come, this passage can't be removed from this context. 1 Corinthians 13 is right in the middle of a larger section about spiritual gifts that spans three chapters. Chapters 12 through 14 are all about spiritual gifts and how to use spiritual gifts to build up the church. And so 1 Corinthians 13 takes its place sort of as the center of that argument. But in a lot of ways, 1 Corinthians 13 is sort of like the climax of the whole letter of 1 Corinthians. Paul addresses all of the Corinthians' problems in this one beautiful, simple, and short poem about love. He addresses spiritual gifts, pride, boasting, generosity, infighting, spiritual maturity, and Christian character all in this one chapter, which is easily the shortest chapter in the book. Paul addresses all of their problems right here by pointing to the root of the problem, and Paul's diagnosis is simple. The Corinthian Christians are missing the most important ingredient for Christian living. The Corinthians lack love. But what does Paul mean by love? The four aces saying that love is a many-splendored thing. It's the April rose that only grows in early spring. Love is nature's way of giving a reason to be living, the golden crown that makes a man a king. The darkness saying that love is only a feeling. The Beatles saying that all you need is love. Joe Cocker saying that love lifts us up where we belong. But it was Hathaway who asked the vital question, what is love? What is love? What is the love that Paul is talking about here? What does Paul mean by love? Part of the difficulty is that in English, love is a many-splendored word. Our English word love can refer to all sorts of things. It refers to commitments, to feelings, to passions, to virtues. I can love my sermon. I can love my congregation. I can love my wife. I can love my mom. I can love my shoes. All, all, the, the, the English word for love is so, is so broad. But thankfully, in the Greek language, which is the language that Paul wrote in, they're a little bit more precise with things that matter this much. <laughs> uh, 
Um, there, there's, there's several words in Greek for love, uh, for to be exact. And if any of you have read C.S. Lewis's The Four Loves, you know where I'm going with this because C.S. Lewis uses these four Greek words for love to talk about the four different kinds of love that we have in human relationships. Um, so, yeah, so I think it's important that we go through these to, to see what Paul is talking about and what Paul isn't talking about when he talks about love. The first word for love in Greek is stege, and you, don't, you guys don't have to remember these Greek words. I'm just saying them to help me remember. Um, stege refers to the kind of love that is shared between a parent and their child, um, both ways, that, that, that there's this special, unique kind of love that exists between a parent and a child. And this word isn't actually used anywhere in the New Testament. Um, but it is important for understanding that this is a unique and a particular type of love and that this is not what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 13. Paul is not talking about the love of parents for their children or children for their parents. The second Greek word for love is philia. And this is a friendly love, a kind of affection or fondness. And we see this word in English words like philosophy, the love of wisdom, and philanthropy, the love of people, the love of humankind. Philia is the kind of love that's shared between friends or the kind of love that's shared between a person and a thing. It's the same word in Greek if you love your friend Mark or if you love fishing. It's the same word. It's philia. And this word is used a lot in the New Testament, but it's not the word that Paul uses here. Paul is not talking about fondness or friendship. The third Greek word for love is eros. This is a love that's born out of desire, especially sexual desire. The Greek god of sex was called Eros, and it's where we get the word erotic from in English. But Eros doesn't have to be sexual. Eros is any type of love born out of desire, and sexual desire is only one type of desire. So Eros is much bigger than just sexual desire. It's all desire. And it's worth taking a look at this word for a little while, even though it doesn't occur in the New Testament, which I was kind of surprised to find. Um, and it's, so it's not what Paul's talking about here in 1 Corinthians 13. But I think that this type of love is the way that most people in our culture understand love. For most people, the darkness is right. Love is only a feeling. It's the best feeling. It's, it's an incredible feeling, but that's still what it is. It's still a feeling. It may be a feeling that draws us toward another person. It may be a feeling that captures us and raptures us so completely that we think it will last forever. But it is a feeling. Erotic love is a love born out of desire, and desire is born out of need. Erotic love can't last forever because it's a very human type of love. It's born out of need, and love that's born out of need will go away when the need is fulfilled. Erotic love may draw two people together out of attraction and desire for one another, but it's definitely not the kind of love that holds them together for richer, for poorer, for better, for worse, in sickness and in health till death do us part. Desire can only take us so far. What Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians 13 is not the love between parents and children, it's not friendship, it's not desire. Paul is using the fourth word, that's the fourth Greek word for love, and that's agape. Agape is used in ancient Greek literature long before Christians 
and, and long before the, the Old Testament is translated into Greek, um, and long before Christians write the New Testament, it's used very, very long time before that to refer to these kind of intangible ideas, like the love that a person has for their country, or the respect that uh, people show when they remember a, a loved one who has passed away. Um, so, so, so it's kind of this, this mysterious, this, this unique word that describes things that can't really be described, can't really be defined. Um, but when you get to the time of Christ and you get to the translation of the Old Testament into Greek and, and the writing of the New Testament, the word agape comes to have a very specific meaning for Jewish and Christian writers. Agape is the love of God. The love of God for humans and the love of humans for God. Agape is very simply the love of God. And it's this love that Paul says is necessary for Christian living. And on the surface, it's, it's really an amazing thing that Paul claims. Paul looks at all of the problems that plague the Corinthian church and he says that what they need is the love of God. What Paul's implying here and what we'll come to see as this series unfolds is that Christians can love with God's love. Christians can love with God's love. That's amazing. That's, that's incredible. The, the, the idea that Paul is saying is that God's perfect love is available to us now and that we can love others with God's love. Not only does Paul say that that's possible, he says that it's necessary to love with the perfect love of God. Paul starts out by putting this conversation squarely in the, 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 the context of the argument about spiritual gifts. He starts out with the spiritual gift that was causing so much um, conflict in Corinth at the time. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Paul says that if people have the gift of tongues but do not allow God's love to govern the way that they exercise that gift, they are babbling fools. The language that Paul uses here, resounding gong and clanging cymbal, refers to the sounds of Greek culture, to the sound of the theater and the sound of the, the mystery cults, the Greek mystery cults. And Paul is basically saying that when Christians do not allow love to govern the exercise of the spiritual gift of tongues, they sound just like the empty Greek idol worshipers that the, Christ, that the Corinthian Christians came from. Without love, the gift of tongues might as well be paganism, is what Paul is basically saying. Then Paul turns, in verse 2, he turns to other spiritual gifts that he had listed previously in chapter 12. If I have the gift of prophecy, and I can fathom all, all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith that can move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. Paul starts in verse 1 with tongues, the gift that the Corinthians thought was the most important. But then to show that he's not showing favoritism, he immediately follows that up with the gift that he's constantly telling the Corinthians is the most important, the gift of prophecy. Neither the gift of tongues nor the gift of prophecy is worth anything 
if the gifts are not exercised through love, nor do mysteries and knowledge and faith amount to anything if the person exercising them doesn't have love. In fact, Paul goes even beyond saying that these gifts are worthless and says that even the person exercising these gifts is worthless without love. Paul doesn't say at the end of verse 2, the gifts are nothing, these gifts are nothing. Paul says, I am nothing. If a person has all the spiritual gifts in their fullest measure, but doesn't have love, that person is worthless. That's strong language. I mean, that's, that's really saying something. To claim that without love, people are worth nothing. But then in verse 3, Paul expands it even beyond the conversation about spiritual gifts. If I give all I possess to feed the poor and surrender my body to the flames but have not love, I gain nothing. And I'm not sure why the NIV doesn't include to feed because that's what the Greek says. The Greek actually doesn't say the poor. It says to feed, and the poor is implied. Um, But Paul here is probably referring back to um, the conversation about the abuses at the Lord's table in in, in chapter 11. Um, where the rich Corinthians were eating better food and were, were, leaving, uh, were humiliating the poorer members of the church by, by not giving them good food. Um, and so, so, so Paul's connecting it very, very clearly to a previous conversation that they've already had. And so what Paul is sort of saying in this passage, in, this, in verse 3, he's basically saying that even if you Corinthian Christians follow all the advice that I'm giving you in this letter, even if you follow all the teachings of Jesus Christ, even if you follow my example and Christ's example in giving up your bodies for the sake of the gospel, it won't profit you a thing. That will be useless. So in verse 1, Paul says that without love, spiritual gifts are nothing. In verse 2, he says that without love, people are nothing. In verse 3, he says that without love, a Christian lifestyle is worth nothing, profits nothing. Everything is meaningless without God's love. Gifts, people, righteous living, all of it is meaningless without the perfect gift of God's love in our lives. God's perfect love is necessary if our lives are going to be of any value at all. Paul tells the Corinthians that they need to let God's love guide their actions, to let God's love guide them as they use their spiritual gifts to build up the body of Christ, to let God's love guide them as they celebrate the Lord's Supper and resolve internal disputes and discipline members who are living in violation of God's will, to let God's love guide them as they decide whether or not to get married. God's love needs to be their guide. God's perfect agape love is the most excellent way that Paul says he's going to show the Corinthians in 12 verse 31. The Corinthian Christians need to love each other with God's love. Love is necessary if Christians are going to live as Christians in the world. But it's still, there's still sort of this lingering question 
about whether it's possible, whether it's even possible to love with the love of God. How can ordinary human beings love with God's perfect love? We are only human, after all. So how can we love with the perfect love of God? There's an interesting fact about this chapter that the commentators pointed out that I had never noticed before. Never noticed. In the entire chapter, all 13, is it 13 verses? All 13 verses, Paul never mentions God. He never mentions Jesus. He never mentions the Holy Spirit. Maybe that's why it's so popular at weddings, even non-Christian weddings, because it doesn't mention God at all. That, that was interesting to me. But the sense of the divine permeates the whole passage. I mean, it's, it's, just, it's just soaked in God. This whole passage is just, is just, just screams God. And so we might ask, how can it be possible for a, a human being to love with the perfect love of God? But the answer, if we've been paying attention to anything else that the rest of the Bible has been saying, is clear. We can love with God's perfect love because God lives inside of us through his Holy Spirit. God showed us the perfect example of his love in the person of Jesus Christ, who even though he was the Son of God, he did not consider it beneath himself to lay down his life for the sake of humankind. But Jesus was more than just an example for us to follow. In his death on the cross, Jesus took our sin on himself. He took our unholiness with him to the grave and clothed us in his righteousness so that we could receive the Holy Spirit of God. God lives inside of us through the Holy Spirit and it's because of God's Spirit inside of us that we have the ability, we have the capacity, we have the power, we have the necessity to love with God's love with God's perfect agape love. It's because of Jesus that we can know the love of God. 1 John 3.16 says, This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. This is the theological background. This is the, 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 the structure, the, the foundation of this passage. And as we work our way through the rest of this chapter over the next weeks and months, meditating on the characteristics of perfect divine love, I hope that we will see the love of Jesus Christ pouring out of this passage. That each and every characteristic, each and every attribute of love that Paul lists points us back to the cross of Jesus Christ, to the humble and disgraceful throne of our King, back to the symbol of death that God was powerful enough to turn into a symbol of love. This is the great truth that pervades this passage, and this is why I'm so excited that we're going to be preaching on it for another long time. This is the truth that pervades this passage, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him will not perish 
but have everlasting life. This is the love that forgives our sins. This is the love that makes us pure. This is the love that fills us and animates us and overflows from us into the world around us. God's perfect, self-giving, other-receiving love that works its way so powerfully in a world that can be dark and full of terrors. God gives us His love so that we can love others as He loved us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said, Amen. Our Lord and our God, we give you thanks. We give you thanks that this passage is in Scripture. We give you thanks that we have the opportunity to read it and meditate on it and think about it and talk about it together. We thank you that you give us your Holy Spirit and that you forgive our sins so that we can love others as you have loved us. And we pray that that's exactly what we'll do. We pray that you will so transform us by your Holy Spirit that when people look at us, all that they see is your love shining through us. This is our prayer. This is our hope. This is our deepest desire. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.